0: I want to ask you to open your copy of the scripture to the Gospel of John, please, and John chapter 4. In the early days of this place called the Alamo City Church or the Alamo City Christian Fellowship, uh, before that we were the Alamo City Baptist church before that we were the New Southern Baptist Church in San Antonio that's that takes you back 31 years where we where we embarked on this journey <clears throat> one of the things that was so much at the heart at the core of what was stirring within us during those days and continues to be a Strong, strong part of the heart of this church is the longing, I would just say, the passion, the passion for freedom in worship. The passion for freedom in worship. Now, that doesn't mean that we didn't know any of the songs of the church, doesn't mean that we didn't know what an order of worship was or that uh, we didn't have a worship center. It was just that there was something that would go off in our hearts whenever Amazing Grace would be sung or There's Power in the Blood or those songs about the name of Jesus the healer of broken hearts, the name of Jesus, something within us would just rise up, and there needed to be an expression for that. But some of our backgrounds was a setting where if you felt your hand rising up and catching about shoulder level and chin level, and you just, you were just about to do this, you would catch the cold, glaring stare of the religious police in the room. Now, what's that all about? What's, what's going on there? What's, where are we headed, Pastor? And, That just continued to work to the point that it became just an unstoppable quench. Not that everybody had to raise their hands or everybody had to shout once in a while or even everybody had to say amen. But when you read the Scripture and you find that it's just all the way through the book, why can't we express ourselves in those ways? when the Spirit so so you get to you get to studying what it means to be filled with the Spirit, and you get to asking the Lord to fill you with His Spirit, and then the next thing you know, you're gonna find the desire to worship Him more yeah. come out of your life, come out of your heart. The other bar ditch is, you know, one bar ditch being you you, you just have to be normal and just sing the songs in a normal way and and don't get too excited about things. Just, just go through the motions and play your church. The other side is that, well, everybody better raise their hands, or everybody better dance, or everybody ever ought to be falling out, you know. But there's, here's the litmus test for a spirit-filled church, that everybody has to raise their hands, everybody has to express worship in the same way. You know, bottom line is that is as much bondage as the other bondage. Nobody can express and then the other bondage is everybody has to do it the same way. Or you get judged because you hadn't raised your hand or judged because you hadn't done this. Same way you get judged if you do. <laughs> you, you know, this, this is just a breakthrough. This is just a massive breakthrough. There's only one person in the audience of worship, and it is nobody on this planet. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks about the way you are moved to worship as long as there is a sense that it is authentic toward the one whom you are giving the praise to and the worship to. It doesn't matter if the religious police on either side of the issue look at you or say things or whatever. Well, that, that, was, that was a massive part of the foment that brought to the birthing of the Alamo City, what came to be known as the Alamo City Church years ago. And over the years, we have continued to have to lean into that thing from time to time. And I'll have I'll have folks every once in a while and they don't you know they don't usually stay here long. <laughs> don't usually stay here long. Pastor, is this is this a place where such and such will happen on a regular basis? And they'll give some litmus test of what a spirit filled church is. And how long has it been since this happens, or does that happen, or is this allowed? To which my response is, if you're walking in here with a litmus test, you just need to keep on walking down your church shopping row, because we don't want that poison, we don't want that bondage placed upon ones who are free in the Spirit, which means freedom to raise your hands, freedom to, but freedom to not do it, freedom to keep your hands in your pocket. Freedom to walk in here and not say one thing to one soul because your heart is heavy. Now that, that takes us to the passage that I want you to look at. John chapter 4. Jesus has just met the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well. <laughs> Interesting conversation. She, she, he asked her for a drink of water. And then then he begins to talk to her about this living water. And she says, oh, my goodness. I'm I'm, I'm paraphrasing this a little bit. You need to read it to get it exactly what it's saying. But this is the gist of it. She said, oh, my goodness. If, if, if If there's a way I can avoid coming here and drawing water from this deep well, give me some of that living water. I want some of that living water. And then Jesus immediately says, well, go call your husband. And she says, I don't have a husband to which he says, you are correct, you don't have a husband, you've had five. And the, one, the man you're with right now isn't your husband. Then she starts saying, oh, I perceive you are a prophet. And then she starts, evidently, it seems like kind of dodging the points of, of his truth. And she begins to talk about worship. Well, we worship here in this mountain. The Samaritans had a spot where they would worship but you Jews worship in Jerusalem. Jesus picks up on her introduction of the topic of worship to speak some things that that his church needs to really get a grip on and find the joy in. So I just want us to look at about three or four verses within that context of their conversation. Verse 21, John chapter 4, verse 21. Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. Verse 23, but an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers, true worshipers, shall worship the Father in spirit And in truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Let me give you the meaning, just for our understanding a little more clearly, give you the meaning of two or three words. One is this word that Jesus used. For worship. It, it's translated into English worship. But here is what the word that Jesus used literally means to kiss the face off. To kiss the face off. Well, I can tell you this for sure that if somewhere or another you aren't drawn with kindness, with, uh, with, a, with a, a positive attitude and a desire for closeness, you're not going to be kissing on anything. You might wave at it. You might clap for it. You might look at it from a distance. But you won't be trying to get close to it. At the heart, folks, at the heart of the word for worship, These are the ones that the Father is looking for, is seeking, is desiring to be his worshipers. These are the ones who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Worship is a heart word. It is not a brain word. Worship is something that flows from the inside of your heart. It is not a performance word. You can perform all the Christian music excellently with with skill that is just off the charts, But it isn't worship if the instrumentalist's heart is not engaged and desiring to get close enough to kiss the very face of God, if I could do it. Same thing with a singer. Same thing with a speaker. Same things with someone who would own it on the worshipers. Worshipers are ones who from the heart have this overflow working in them to want to get close to the presence of the living God. That song we just sang a minute ago is Desiring Your Presence, Lord. Holy Spirit, you're welcome in this place because it is the presence of the Spirit that makes the presence of Jesus, the presence of the Lord, real in the room. And I believe that as a born again, Jesus alive on the inside child of God, there's something on the inside of you, that is drawn toward, that moves in the direction of of wanting to be close to him, closer to him. They will worship him in spirit and in truth. Worship meaning to press into, to get close enough, not just to observe at a distance, but close enough that you could kiss him on the cheek. You could kiss him if you could get that close to him. But spirit and truth, worship in spirit and truth. That's the invisible part of you. That's the vertical part of you that has the ability to think about God, that has the ability because Christ now is alive inside us by his spirit to connect with the Lord. It's not saying they shall worship him first and foremost with their mouths or they shall worship first and foremost with what their hands can do, with how Painting can be done, or architecture can be, can be designed, and buildings can be built. Wonderful things, beautiful, beautiful, skilled works of art in the name of Jesus. But the only way those things are acts of worship is if the artisan from the heart is drawn to the person of Jesus, and is desiring the nearness of his presence, the closeness of his presence. It is that invisible part of you. And and, then you see the invisible part of you is not necessarily only gonna be active when you're inside a church building. It's as if Jesus is saying, there's gonna be a time to come when the building where the worship is held is inconsequential. It won't matter. If they're stained glass or not, it won't matter if they're a pew. Those are things about convenience, but they are not necessarily things about worship. Do I get a witness? That the sense of his presence, the sense of his presence, wherever you find yourself experiencing that, is the place of worship. Now, they didn't say we shouldn't come into these wonderful, convenient houses of worship. But Jesus is emphatic. You keep going. You Samaritans keep going to a building. The Jewish people keep going to a building. But there's a day coming when you won't need a building. There's a day coming when you will be able, and we are in that day, when we will worship him in spirit and in truth. Our hearts, our hearts, our hearts seeking him. Truth. Truth, worship him in spirit and in truth. Truth meaning at the core, at the heart of who God really is. Not a man-made God, not just a religious person's God, but God as he really is, God as Jesus came to express him. (laughs) Spirit and in truth, truth about who the Lord is, but truth about who you and I are too. And that's why Jesus would say, in this context of worship, you got to start telling the truth about who you're married to, lady. You you got to be start to start telling the truth and live with the truth of what's really going on in your life, because the God to whom you worship or you want to worship knows you. He knows every detail. And he still desires for you to worship him. It's an amazing thing. It is not those who worship him must worship him in spirit and corrected truth or resolved truth or everything altogether truth. No. And we'll see this in a moment as we read another story. That it's it's a person who may have known the depths of sin, the depths of running away from God, the depths of rebellion, but they're honest about who they are. They're not trying to play a game. They will, be, they will be open to the truth about who they are, crying out for, looking to the truth about who God is, and there's something inside of them that is propelling them to want to get closer, get nearer to the Lord. Here is a working definition for worship, if you care to jot it down. Worship is always a response. Worship is not a place. Worship is not a thing. Worship is not a piece of architecture. Worship is not a statue of Mary holding a baby. Worship is a response. It is always a response. Worship is a verb. It's not a noun. You you worship something. You respond to something. So, worship is the heart's response to the sense of the nearness of God his goodness and his greatness worship is the heart's response will you I well, want please let let that in and then that's why it just helps clarify some stuff as to why we can go to Christmas pageants and we can go to Easter pageants, we can go to services, there can be scripture read, there can be amazing song sung, there can be all kinds of choral excellence brought forth and in instrumental power and all that stuff. And you walk out of there feeling as if nothing of consequence happened. And you're right. There was no worship, even though the sounds were excellent. Nobody missed any of the diction. Everything was performed properly, but there was no sense of the engagement of the hearts of the performers, of the singers, of the instrumentalists, of the speakers. There was no sense of their hearts really being drawn to the person of Jesus Christ. On the other hand, you can go to a place where there doesn't seem to be a lot of fanciness. There doesn't seem to be a whole lot of excellence. There doesn't seem to be a whole lot of art and giftedness in those ways. They have you know, one microphone and there are five people trying to sing into one microphone. One speaker over here and it's cracking halfway through every song. But as the songs come forth, as the sounds come forth, you see it on their faces. You feel it in the room that they may not be perfect, but they are worshiping him in spirit, in their spirits and in the truth according to who they are and who they believe God to be. Jesus said those are the ones the Father seeks, desires to be his worshipers. Now, worship is going to have For sure, these two parts to it. There can be other parts, but these two for sure. One is, I'm thanking him. I'm thanking him. The second one is, I'm trusting him. I'm trusting him. It may be, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. But I'm trusting you as I worship you. Thankful for what? Thankful for what? I I want you to find um, over in the Old Testament, I want you to find 2 Samuel chapter 6. 2 Samuel chapter 6. David the author of most of the book of the Psalms. There were some other Psalms. Moses wrote one, Asaph wrote a few, but David was the author of, of most of the Psalms. So he, he, was, a, he was a hymn writer. He was a, he was a worship leader in a very real sense. But he hadn't always been there. It took him a while to get to that place because even though he was anointed the king of Israel, Saul was the king ahead of him. And he had to wait until such time, you remember the story, until Saul was removed, until Saul was killed in a battle before David could be brought forth. And during that time of Saul knowing that David was to take his place, he hated David, saw him as a threat, sought over the span of perhaps 10 years to hunt him down and kill him. David was an outcast from his own people he, he couldn't safely go into jerusalem and worship in the area where the known assigned presence of the lord between the wings of the cherubim atop the mercy seat atop the ark of the covenant in the holy in the most holy place in the tabernacle the temple hadn't been built the tabernacle was still in place David's yearning, and you read it in the Psalms, several of them that were written during his time of being hunted by, by Saul, that, that he 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 wanted to be, he wanted to be physically as close to the presence of the Lord as he could. He, he wanted to kiss the face of the Lord if he if he could, but he had been he had been an outcast and couldn't safely go there. But then the time comes where Saul is killed and David is then made king and and then here, here we have this in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 12: the Ark of the Covenant, symbolizing the nearness of the presence of God. It was told King David, verse 12, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed Edom and all that belongs to him on account of the ark of God, staying in temporarily at Obed Edom's house and his under his care. And David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with gladness. And so it was that when the bearers of the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed an ox and a fatling. And David was dancing before the Lord with all his might And David was wearing a linen ephod. Might I insert only a linen ephod. That's a loincloth. No crown. No robes of purple. No royal scepter. Virtually naked. Dancing (laughs) with all his might before the Lord. Now I got to tell you. There, are, there can be some of us in some of our points in our spiritual journey. If we were to be quizzed and somebody said, do you believe the Bible? Absolutely, I believe the Bible. I believe the Bible from the table of contents to the maps. And then they would say, well, what do you think about David dancing before well, the Lord half naked? Well, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to have to think about that. I've got a lot of children. Instead of... Instead of just saying, you know, isn't that something? That may not have been my experience. That may not have been your experience. But why do we feel like we've got to carve out sections of the Bible just because they don't match what we're comfortable with? And especially in this place of worship, here's a a wonderful key at the heart of worship, and it's this word, two-syllable word, freedom, freedom, freedom. Religion will constrain you. Even Christian religion will restrict you. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. David was a man, a king, a head of state, thank you very much, leader of the armies of Israel, but free, free you remember the story so so they you know the the day ends and he goes home and michael his the wife the daughter of saul engages him and says my how the king of israel distinguished himself today in front of all the handmaidens, all the people in other words what were you doing you look like a fool for your worship For what you called worship, I call it stupidity. I call it foolishness. I call it unnecessary. How would a king, why would a king act such a way as that? You, you You just better watch out when you get in the way of the passion of a true worshiper. Because then you force the worshiper to choose between you and the object of his or her worship. And if the force, if it comes down to making a decision, you lose. And the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords and the savior of our souls, he's going to win. So David said to her, now listen to me. Again, this is kind of Walker uh, Tex-Mex interpretation here, just a Walker. Now you listen to me. The Lord picked me and not your daddy to be the king over Israel. And I will celebrate before the Lord. The the worship was celebration. The worship was an explosion of joy. The worship was was an expression of incredible humility, but he wasn't bound by his position. The the position of king was not a bondage. It was an accessory to his life. It wasn't who he was. But who he was was someone who was in love with his king and his Lord. I will celebrate before the Lord. Folks, one of the great things about this matter of worship and the work of the Spirit bringing us further and further into that place of worship is we're just to realize that it, it is an increasing work of his bringing freedom to us. You know, there's some old sourpuss, some old, some old spiritual, you know, Gestapo, three rows back, when you feel like your hand's got to go up or you feel like you've got to say hallelujah or you need to say praise the Lord, and they're just glaring at you. You can feel the hair on the back of your neck stand up, Alma. If you get to the place where it just doesn't phase you, that they can, they can glare till hell freezes over. You but you are who you are. He is who he is. And you're going for him. And as close as you can get to him, as much of him as you can get, that's what, that's what you want. That's what you want. I've had some folks over the years, you know, they're not, they, most of the time they don't stay very long. I almost City. But somebody says, "I'm a Pastor, There's somebody that is just rather tall in structure and got these long arms. And my family and I have been sitting in this pew since Adam was a child. We have been here, we have been here and we've faithfully given to this church and we've done everything we're supposed to do. And lo and behold, out of nowhere, here comes this large long-armed person Positions herself, himself, right in front of me. And pastor, I can't even see the words on the screen. <laughs> pastor, the truth is I can't even see the pulpit. <laughs> it's just flailing away and just won't sit down. And Here's my standard response. Do you know them? There you go. Have you talked to them? Have you asked her to tell you your story, her story, about what Jesus has done in her life? I do not know of one person in these 31 years who has ever answered it with, well, I'll do that. I'll find out more, who later came back to me and said, Pastor, I'm still in the same spot. I don't want this person in the church. Usually, if the one getting in the way is positioned there, this one will relocate. And here's what I want to tell you why. Find your way to Luke chapter 7. Gospel of Luke. Gospel of Luke. Chapter 7, verse 30. No, verse 36. Verse 36, 736. Now, one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him, and he, Jesus, entered the Pharisees' house and reclined at the table. And behold, there was a man, a woman in the the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that Jesus was reclining at the table of the Pharisees, having dinner at the Pharisees' house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet, and anointing them with the perfume. And when the Pharisee had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Now, will you, will you just let everything we've just said about worship and what worship is and getting close to Close enough to kiss the face of the object of worship. And what was said about spirit and what was said about truth, the truth about who Jesus is, but the truth about who you are. And then you realize that at no point in any of the story does Jesus turn the woman's worship away. She was worshiping him, she was a known sinner. She was doing what she was doing, and she may have not ever heard of anybody ever doing anything like what she was doing. But in that moment of her worship, she was free. She was free of what the Pharisee would think about her. She was free even of the fear that perhaps Jesus would not receive what she was offering. She was being propelled by the passion within her To kiss the face of Jesus, feeling that she's not worthy enough to kiss his face, what does she kiss? She kisses his feet. Worship, 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 worship in this passage. Jesus, knowing what the Pharisee has said, how he was thinking, told the story of the moneylender with the two debtors, and one of the debtors was more than the other, and then in the story, Jesus tells Simon the Pharisee, but the money lender forgave them both. He forgave the one who owed him a lot, forgave him the one who owed him very little. And then he asked Simon, you can read it here. So, Simon, who loved him more? Who loved the money changer more? And Simon's answer well, I suppose the one whom he forgave the most. Jesus, in verse 47, for this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, which are many. How can I get that? He is receiving the worship of an active sinner, not the worship of a former sinner. Her sins, which are many father desires those who will worship him in spirit she's weeping as she approaches jesus because she's overwhelmed by the kindness of jesus and she was feeling somehow from jesus that she would be forgiven by jesus there was mercy coming out Of Jesus toward her. She may have known of Jesus before, seen him in some other setting, heard what he had to say, but her response was the invisible part of her I'm drawn to him. I want to bless him. I want to honor him. And in him I can find forgiveness. She must have believed. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little forgives little. Would you say that back to me? He who is forgiven little loves little. Let's say that. I didn't hear you. He who is forgiven little loves little. One more time. He who is forgiven little loves little. You know why we get up on our high horse? You know why we get to judging people? You know why we get to say, well, I'd never do anything like that? It's because we've forgotten what we have done. Here's the principle. If you want to love him a lot, then let him show you how much he's forgiven you are. But if you want to have a little light, polite kind of, oh, tip your hat to God, little bit of Jesus, but a whole bunch of everything else, then just go ahead and assume you're not as as big a sinner as someone else. It's It's an automatic connection. Why Paul would say, who was probably one of the most moral men who ever walked the face of the earth, he called himself the chief of sinners. I'm the least of all the saints. Now, what, what Paul? You wrote two thirds of the New Testament. I mean, you you were a Pharisee's Pharisee. You you were you said that you didn't that you kept the the letter of the law to the best of your ability. What what are you saying? I'm the chief of sinners, because Paul understood that the lack of mercy, the lack of being able to forgive others is directly tied to how much we feel like we need the Lord to forgive us. And that's why, that's why it takes, folks, listen, moral collapse sometimes in order for the mercy of God to become real to somebody who may have known all the scriptures Known all the principles. But you know, you, you, it's amazing how mean Christian people can be, church-going people can be. You've known that? Mean as a snake. You, you, you wouldn't want you, you, you to expect them to cut you any slack because there's no slack. But they can quote you the Bible. It's amazing and it's wonderful. Jesus said, here are the ones the Father desires to worship Him. It's the ones who will seek him, will worship him from their hearts, and who will worship him from the place of truth about who they really are. Truth about who God is, that yes, he's, yes, he's the lawgiver. Yes, he is just. Yes, he is almighty. But his love and kindness endures forever. And Paul would say, but when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we've done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. But according to his mercy. You know, it's just striking in this place that Jesus received this woman's worship. But the religious police found in the person of Simon the Pharisee is still condemning her and still saying if Jesus were really who he claims to be, he wouldn't have anything to do with her because she is a sinner. To which Jesus says she is a sinner. But her sins have been forgiven because she's looking to me. She's desiring me. She's worshiping me, and that's an expression of faith. Your faith has saved you. Amen. (laughs) Amen. So we, we thank him for the freedom he brings to our lives. We thank him for the forgiveness he brings to our lives. And one more. We thank him for the rescue, for the rescue that he brings. Turn over a few more pages in Luke to Luke chapter 17, verse 11. Now, Where we're going with this, folks, as you find your way, is that I'm going to ask you, I'm going to give you a an assignment this afternoon, inviting everyone back tonight. And those who are watching part of this online, this will be live streaming, a time of worship tonight. But during the time of worship, two things we are going to be bringing to do. One is a fresh list of things that we thank Him are having done in our lives. Forgiveness, freedom. We're going to read a story about a rescue. But then also as a part of your list, the things right now you're trusting him for. There are some wonderful occasions in Scripture of where worship just began to come out of the hearts of people even though there were enemies arrayed against them, invading armies at the doorstep. Paul and Silas arrested and thrown in the jail at Philippi. But they just began to praise and began to worship, began to thank the Lord. And You remember the story of the earthquake and the, the breakthrough and revival came to the jailer's house and so forth. Anybody can say, Lord, I trust you after the battle's already been won. Anybody can say, Lord, I believed you after it's happened. But what if an expression of the strongest love, the greatest desire to press into him is when nothing has been solved yet, when the issues remain, but something inside us has to say, Lord, I'm trusting you. I'm trusting you. I'm trusting you. Come with your list tonight. We won't be making those things public, but I want to I want to challenge you that we go on record as declaring back to the Lord. We we do it actually, literally. Lord, I thank you, and then I thank you for this, and I'm thanking you for this, and I thank you for this. But then also, Lord, I'm trusting you. I believe, but help my unbelief. I'm trusting you the best I can. This is Luke 17, verse 11. It came about while Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem that he was passing between Samaria and Galilee, and as he entered a certain village, ten leprous men who stood at a distance met him. And they raised their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And it came about that as they were going, they were cleansed. Now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at his feet, at the feet of Jesus, giving thanks to him. And he was a Samaritan, thought of as a mixed breed, less than a dog to the upstanding Jewish culture of that day. Samaritans were considered unclean. And Jesus answered and said, were there not ten cleansed? But the nine, where are they? Was no one found who turn back to give glory to God, except this foreigner. And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Are we the one or are we a party of the nine? God, heal my baby. Lord, my job. Lord, my marriage. We cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And he has had mercy. And he did something. He fixed something. He brought back something. He added to you, something to you. Was there ever a thank you? Or did we just go on to the next challenge, the next thing? Worship has at its heart a thankful spirit, not an entitlement mentality. Well, God, you better. God, you should. Look at all the stuff I've done for you. Look at how long I've been in church. Look at what I used to be that I'm not anymore. There were nine that got healed. There was only one who came back to say, thank you, Jesus. Tonight is a night when we're going to let the Lord remind us of the things that he has done for us. But that maybe we never have really stopped long enough to say thank you. What can happen is that we can keep seeing the next Goliath out there. We can keep seeing the next problem, the next challenge. But faith is going to rise, folks. Faith is going to rise when we look back and see what he has done. That he didn't leave us out in the cold. That he didn't drop us. He didn't forget about us. he, He didn't abandon us. Here, here. This will inform that. But if all we keep looking at is the Goliath, one after another, one giant after another, and we never look back to see the lion and the bear that he helped us get through. That's what David said. I, I fought the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine is going to be no different than they were. Now, here's this 16-year-old kid telling this king about this, this warrior from his youth, and he was right because it wasn't how big Goliath was, it was how faithful his God had been to the lion and the bear and how great his heart was filled with confidence that if the Lord had done this, the Lord can do that. You're going to have to do some work on that. Lord, will you show me? I mean, if, if, if we're looking at stuff, staring things in the face that are scaring us to death or shutting us down or causing us not to want to even get up in the morning then it could be tied directly to the fact that I've lost my thankful heart. I've lost my thankful heart. I'm nine. I'm one of the nine. I'm not, one of the, I'm not that one who came back. These are the ones the Father desires to be his worshipers, the ones who will worship him in spirit, and in truth. It's not about singing songs. It's not about quoting scripture. It's not about listening to a sermon. It's not about reading a book on marriage or a book on giving. Worship is an overflow of a heart that is desiring the nearness of God. Read that one more time. Worship is the heart's response, the heart's response, the heart's response to the sense of the nearness of God, His goodness, and His greatness. Lord, we come before you just as we are today. (laughs) We we, we come before you as, as, as ones who can find ourselves forgetful it it may not be that we're absolutely ungrateful we're just forgetful which can amount to the same thing Lord will you remind us as these next hours unfold of the ways in which you have proven and demonstrated your faithfulness to us in hearing our cries for help in answering our longing for freedom in meeting us at the place of forgiveness, Lord, will you remind us? And will you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, awaken fresh gratitude? While at the same time, awakening a fresh sense of trust. Lord, I thank you. But Lord, by your Spirit, I'm trusting you. I'm trusting you. I'm trusting you.